Gracious Father, as we sit again, Lord, to be instructed by your word, we beg for your spirit, we beg for enlightenment, understanding. Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart for these things, a mind to contemplate the consequences, the ramifications, Lord, of these truths, but also if they're not applied, what are those consequences? So, Father, do fill our minds with real and true knowledge. Give us a zeal that is becoming of a Christian and of the glory of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Psalm 2. Now, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And I shall, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, One of the emphasis we need to cling to as we look at this psalm is that this psalm is truly directed to heads of states, judges, leaders of men, um, particular, not just men that have a dominant personality or a charismatic personality and sort of garner some type of following like on YouTube or whatever, you know, Uh, subscribers, but these are men that have been placed in superior situations or circumstances and offices because they uh, have demonstrated for the sake of the argument, the quality of being able to lead others or to perform a good work. And this afternoon, we're going to talk about judges We're going to look at those pillars of society. And I think this is one reason that the scriptures take such a firm stance for good judges and the blessing that they bring to any people because the better those men are, the better society will be. But when they are poor, when they are corrupt, when they are when they are bad, then society follows them in the same. And if they are corrupt, uh, it is very common for the community to become and be corrupt as well. 
So as we look at this idea of justice, judges and justice going hand in hand, we need to talk about the foundation of right justice and proper judges. Now, this is an argument. This is, that is what we're going to be doing tonight or this afternoon is equipping ourselves with an argument. Um, I sat down and started writing this past week. I've, I've, I've had, I've, I've got files and notes that are probably 10 years old and I started putting them together and um, sort of writing out a thesis statement that it is the Christian's obligation, moral obligation to advocate for a Christian state. That's a strong statement. Because what I'm saying is, and what I'm looking to support is if you don't do that, that's an, that's an act of immorality in some sense. But this afternoon, we're going to look at what's the argument when we talk about the joining um, or the, the complementary work of religion and magistrate. Why it's important. Why you can't have neutral ground in this area. Well, we're watching it going around us. We're watching that unfold. We're, we're, we're watching this, this idea of neutrality unfold even though they would claim to be uh, either quasi-religious or even, even satanic or whatever the case may be. There's really not neutral ground, but we have to use the term, particularly as it re- relates to the Christian mind that wants to put himself out of gear that they don't do anything. So we're talking about the right execution of justice, and Thomas Burks talks about, he says this, he says, the right of execution of judgment needs impartiality and vigilance, firmness, compassion, The judge must decide with authority and gravity without the suspicion of his being swayed by selfish interest or the fear or favor of his fellow man. I mean, we're watching this play out in the public square in in these court cases. Um, I don't want to get too off on any much of that, but even another court case came up in the sports world this week that just is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that these cases take traction. And, and we can talk about it later, but this is part of a breakdown of society. This, you know, if you get sick, you know, you look in the mirror and you start seeing sores form on your face. Well, guess, what are you thinking? Hmm. You know, you see a rash break out. I mean, you start thinking, where did that come from? There's a problem. You know, and you see it on other places of your body. Like that. I mean, I need to do something about this. Well, that's what's going on around us. This is the decaying of a society. This is the breakdown of a 
culture, a community, of a people, of a nation. This is the tearing down of one worldview and the erection of another one in its place. And we're not connecting the dots for the most part. We're not making connections. We're, we're not following things out into their logical conclusions. And particularly you young people, I hope this is one thing that I, I can help teach you. Think things through. Follow them through. It's not just, there's, all ideas have consequences. All ideas have consequences. And you have to ask yourself, this is wisdom. You have to ask yourself, where will this take me? If I hold to this position, if I hold to this position that it's a moral obligation that I advocate for a Christian state, where will it take me? What will it look like? If I don't, what will it look like? Where will it go? That kind of thing. The reason we have to talk about justice because justice is part of the foundation of a, a good society. All good communities must have, must have some form of justice, solid justice. And this is why the psalm addresses judges. He goes on, I'm going to read a good bit from him and then break out some of these points. But his argument is this, just to sort of give it to you as you're taking notes. If what religion supports justice, what religions, what religion supports the moral foundation for true justice? Now, you've got to keep that in mind. This is what we need to think about. And, of course, he's going to talk about Christianity. Is that religion? Only Christianity provides that high moral ground that, that gives justice the firmness, the vitality, uh, the, the goodness of it that a society can be built on for it to be safe, for it to be secure, for it to have confidence in its justice system. Only Christianity does that. That's not to say that there aren't, there's not justice rendered in some of these other, other places because that does happen. But we're talking about the highest maxim. We're talking about the best of the best. And we're advocating for a Christian state, aren't we? He goes on, he says, now the best security for impartial judgment is when the conscience of the judge is under the power of religious truth. Now, this is huge. He has to have somebody over him. If he's an atheist, who's he accountable to? The constituents? That's really not an authority. That's more of a responsibility. That's more of an engagement. It's really not an authority. So he's talking about 
that the best security for impartial judgment is when the conscience of the judge is under the power of religious truth. No other motive can have such so steady and powerful of an influence. What he says is, first of all, they need to be religious, right? Primarily, they need to be Christian. Remember me saying last week that there was a day, even in this country, if you were not a Christian, you could not witness in a court case. Why? Well, you had to take an oath. You had to swear an oath to what? Tell the whole truth, so help you God. What would that mean to an atheist? It wouldn't mean anything. But for the one who feels the authority over them that God will judge them based upon their testimony, then there is a reason, right, a motivation to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. We don't discount, listen, we, we've, we've pushed religion as the, the, little, the little brother into the corner. You stay over there. All this is big boy stuff over here. This is all big adult stuff, you know, running nations. What we're finding out, you can't do it without Christianity. You can't do it well. Because even when there is justice, it's not for the right reasons. Therefore, it doesn't last He goes on to say that he should rise above the temptations of selfish interest by remembering the account he must himself render to the supreme judge with whom there is no respecter of persons. God doesn't respect persons. He's not going to respect that. Is he, is he from Harvard or is he from the community college? Is he a member of certain clubs? Does he hang out? God doesn't care. He's going to judge him based on his actions. The judges of Israel of, you know, days past were to be men fearing God and hating covetousness. That's Deuteronomy chapter 1, Psalm 89. No lower motive could be so effectual to remove the fear of man and secure upright and impartial decisions. To secure impartiality, uh, injustice must be hated for its own sake or dreaded for the consequences to the wrongdoer. Now, I want you to think about that because he, he says that a judge must have compassion I mean, I want you to think about having the power to ruin somebody's life if you get it wrong. It matters. Uh, you know, you, you, um, I like court movies. I, I like courtroom movies. I, I, I like the engagement and the, the debate. I like the argument, the present, presentation of arguments and all of those things. It intrigues me. Um, and you would find in some of these older movies that the judge would render the verdict and say at the very end of it, may God have mercy on your soul. That there was a statement of sort of compassion that this has to be the verdict, but may God have mercy on your soul. 
And, and this is what Burks is speaking of here. He is speaking of the power the judge holds in his verdict and that to get it wrong pains him to think about it. I'm just talking about it. You see the benefit. He says, the Christian revelation, the scriptures, when received, supplies this motivation. It supplies the motive for the judge to act impartially and with compassion and with firmness and with authority. But when men whose view is, is uh, bonded just by the grave or whose morality is leavened by the atmosphere of selfishness or, and crime which surrounds human courts of law cannot be impartial without some kind of miracle. He says they, get, they are impartial at times, but it's a miracle when they are. You, you remember this parable of the uh, inopportune widow, widow who knocks on the door? Remember why the judge answers her? Because she bothers him. It wasn't because he was just. It wasn't because he was a good judge. It was he was tired of dealing with her. That's very typical in an ungodly society. So he says, listen, when it happens, okay, it happens, but it's not for the right reasons. It's not for good reasons. And therefore, it won't be lasting reasons. And only Christianity can provide that lasting motivation. This truth, he goes on to say, which reason alone might teach us is confirmed by the whole counsel of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Let me read those two verses to you. And then I commanded your judges at that time saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. And you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. That was Moses talking to the lesser magistrates. That's a great motivation, isn't it? Burke says, no lower motive, it is implied, would be likely to overcome the force of temptation or prove an effectual barrier against injustice and oppression. Basically, what he says in that last sentence in the paragraph says, there's no greater motive than Christianity that can curb the selfishness or ineptness of man. That is, if he's crooked, if he's corrupt, if he's selfish, if he shows partiality, there's no greater motivation for him not to be that than Scripture. Scripture is the highest maxim for him not to be that way. Um, I was reading an article about, uh, tied into this, uh, I was reading an article about the... um, the, the governor of uh, London, UK, I think that's what it's called now. And uh, of course, you, you may not know this, but you know, Indians are vegetarians. Those religious Indians are vegetarians. Well, guess what laws are starting to be implemented? Laws that prohibit eating of meat. 
Well, it, well, not yet, but they're heading in that direction by saying, you know, this is not a good thing. Now, this conversation, what, how, what you believe matters. What you believe matters. You cannot divorce your religion from your actions. Let me keep reading here and hopefully making this argument, helping you round out this argument. He says, justice again to be effectual for the good of the state must be vigilant. And what does vigilant mean? Vigilant means watchful, careful, attentive. It must be vigilant and impartial. Impartial means not one part over the other, equal. The evils that arrive that arise from mere neglect and ignorance have rivaled those which flow from direct and conscious oppression. He says, basically, there's great damage done when ignorant judges take the stand. And they don't understand these things. Now, you could say even an irreligious judge is ignorant of what? Their religious duty. Because what's our presupposition? What's the foundation that we're working from? Who's walking in the midst of the judges? Jesus. He is the highest magistrate. And Jesus is walking in the midst of the lower magistrates. And he is judging them by their judgments. So they may be ignorant of that. How would they learn otherwise if we didn't tell them? And particularly, this is why we need to advocate for a religious nation, a Christian nation, for these very principles. Because it's not only just about, oh, well, you're a Christian. Obviously, you would. No, I want to advocate for justice for the small and the great, for the citizen and the foreigner. That's justice. He goes on, he says, uh, the need for high religious uh, principles are more apparent. Lower motives, he's talking about these lower motivations, right, may lead a judge to decide equitably on a case that is forced under his review. He's forced to take it. He's forced to look at it. His reputation may be at stake. There's some outside pressure. Eyes are upon him. Pride and prudence may supply the place of a higher motive and retain him in the path of duty. He says, now all these things may take place for the result of a right end. However, it will never last. Vigilance in detecting crime, comforting the oppressed, and resisting the silent encroachments of power in faithless hands require a virtue of a deeper kind, he says. How few are alive today with those obligations. Now, he's, he's writing in the 1800s. He's addressing even the courts of his own day. And what he is arguing, he's saying only Christianity provides the moral foundations for a solid judicial system. And for judges. Judges that need to be what? Religious. They need to be Christian He goes on and he talks about Solomon sitting upon the throne of judgment 
Uh, Proverbs 20 and verse 8 says, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. That means he's detecting foul play. I wish, think about some of the cases that you have that are going on right now in the public. That is just, it's demoralizing, isn't it? And that's the goal. To, to break down the moral strength and fabric of this, Christian, of this Christian land, the vestiges of it. When we say that, we're not saying that everybody's Christian. And that's a fallacy. Um, he kind of argues in some commentary there on that verse in Proverbs, basically talking about the role that justice plays in not allowing sin to become full grown. Right? Because you listen, if if a judge is willing to take what would we call it? I mean, I mean, weak cases. Um. Cases that are meant for nothing more than this, you know, monetary gain. There's no, there's no, there's no offense. There's no harm. There's not all of this. It's just meant for monetary gain. What happens when these cases are reviewed? And um, what happens when you pay a group of Black Lives Matters protesters two million dollars apiece because they were falsely arrested when they were rioting and burning down Dallas? Should that case have ever been reviewed? No. Not only did they take advantage of the taxpayers and burn down the city, portions of it, then the city had to turn around and pay them. Where do you think that money came from? It came out of the taxpayer's pocket. It didn't come out of the judge's pocket. It's demoralizing. And what does it do? It fosters more cases like that. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Now listen, bribes come in many forms. I feel like it's... This bureaucracy we have. If a favor is given... Even if they say, listen, we know you're not guilty of this, but you're going to be the fall guy of this, but don't worry. You're going to lose your job, but you're going to get a book deal. And we're going to pay you $5 million up front for a book that you're never going to write. Or even if you did write it, you didn't write it. We'll even get that done for you. That's a bribe. That's going on all over the place. Listen. I, I get political fast, remember? 
This is why these politicians can go into office and be barely have $1,000 in their bank account and and in a few terms have several million dollars in their account. Those are bribes. Let us invest your money. Let us turn your $10,000 into $5 million. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm down for it. I'm down for that kind of investment. But at what cost? Nobody makes that kind of money in investments. No one. I just saw this past week the salaries of these, you know, there's more millionaires in Congress than, by, per ratio than anywhere else on the planet. These are bribes. They're being bribed to do evil things and to turn a blind eye to injustice. Psalm 15 in verse 5. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things will never be moved. That's the righteous man. And you know, these most of these people profess to know Christ. Which, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything anymore. I mean, honestly, it just doesn't mean anything anymore. Proverbs 17 and verse 23. A wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. Now, listen, if I go by scripture and I find out that takes place, that person then becomes, in my eyes, wicked. Wicked. Evil. Contrary to the things of God. Contrary to righteousness. That's what wickedness is. It's contrary to goodness. It's contrary to righteousness. And and we have a policy. We have a policy in our court system that they're not supposed to take bribes. They're not, they're not supposed to take any gifts. And if they, if they were to accept a gift, even if it was in, in say, in, in a non-judicial manner, if a case came up and Dave was like, well, I gave Jess a gift, to be like, I need to recuse myself. I know this man. We go way back. We've swapped presents with one another. I need to recuse myself. But that doesn't even happen anymore. Micah 3, verse 11. Her heads, now he's talking about the leaders. This is an indictment now upon Israel, a Judah. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. That is, the corruption has run so deep and it's, it's blinded them and hardened their hearts that literally within the midst of the bribes and the corruption, they say, the Lord's with us. The Lord's blessing us. And this is how I view much of our constituent, our government. They, it's almost as if they can lie with, with any problem, any guilt. And that's what they're doing. These people in Malachi or in Micah, they're lying. God's not in their midst. 
All right, so that's the first part of the argument. And the last part of the argument is Christianity provides the foundation for the kind of justice that the scriptures advocate. Christianity is the highest expression of virtue given to man. No. Christianity is the true and one religion. There is only one God, one Lord, one Jesus, one baptism, one church, not many. We're not to be uh, religious pluralists, not even in practice, certainly not in theory and not in practice. We are not to advocate, support, or advance false religion. He goes on, he says, how does this vigilance and compassion, how is it secured? He says, well, only upon pure and undefiled religion, which can yield the fruits of the things we're talking about. That is, these are the fruits, it's vigilance, it's compassion, this authority, all of that's the fruit of what? Christianity. He says, the princes and statesmen who have come nearest to this high standard are those marked by the deep tone of religious feeling. And they stand out on the pages of history like stars in the darkness to awaken a noble emulation of their successors to the end of time. They stand as examples, those men of this highest virtue, these highest Christian virtue. And those men, we've read, you know, we, we, we read their writings and they move us. They deeply move us. I mean, listen, because there's no perfection in any man or any family or any church in any state, we've adopted this myth that when imperfection is found is to be thrown out with the bath, you know, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And look what we've thrown out, this heritage, this wisdom, this jurisprudence. These men that, like he says, are like stars in the darkness because of their religious tone and eminence. I mean, we've thrown them away. We've thrown them away. We have taught several generations of young people in college and schools that these men are oppressors. These are the oppressors. And there's two categories. There's the oppressed and the oppressor. You're either the oppressor or you're the oppressed. And if you're the oppressed, you need to rise up and overtake the oppressor. Now, that's a false dichotomy. But it's a false dichotomy that Christians just haven't learned to push back against because they're afraid of being labeled the oppressor. Now, I, I think I've said this before. I'm going to say it again in case you missed it because there has been a, a, a popular movement over the last Five years, it started taking root just before all of the COVID stuff, Black Lives Matter and everything else. It was before that. But it didn't really take traction. All those things helped it. Of understanding that Christianity is the white man's religion. 
What are we going to do about it? Now, I've said all along this is a religious war. And there, have, there, there are conferences. You can look this up. This is not a secret. You can find these conferences that have taken place in Europe and in the United States that are addressing these questions. And I remember years ago coming and I was talking with someone and I told them about this interview I saw on TV with this guy. To my, you know, the, the, the white man's religion has to be stifled. It has to be put down. It's the cause of all of these things. Because Christianity is the source of all these wars and problems. And I was laughed at. Now, I mean, we were friends. I mean, I was, but he was like, oh, you, man, you, nah, they ain't gonna, that's not going to get traction. Well, it did get traction, and it is getting traction because professors are promoting this stuff in school. Now, the point being is the application of what Burks is talking about here, these eminent stars, these, these people with a deep religious character that take their role in given society as judges or magistrates in whatever form or office seriously, and they take it and they, they, they express their faithfulness in those offices through their religion. So again, he's building this argument, and I hope I've done a fair job with it if you're not reading his work, but that Christianity is the only thing that rises to the occasion to meet the true need. He talks about firmness and compassion, that every sound judge needs to be firm, strong, authoritative, but he has to, be, he has to have compassion. Weakness and irresolution encourages crime. Even when there's a pronouncement against it. He says a harsh and severe temper, on the other hand, seems to the vulgar to turn the law itself into the, an engine of cruelty. Till sensitive minds are ready to side with the criminal against the law which condemns him to suffer. You could take the death penalty, for example. In either case, the whole course of justice is endangered and mischief and confusion will arise. And I mean, not only, listen, not only do we live in a land that advocates for the, the, uh, um, for the, the criminal, but we live in a land that advocates for animals over humans. That's a byproduct of it. I, I, I get, um, I, I'm on this uh, uh, app, you know, that keeps up with your neighbor. And I'm on it for the sake of crime. Because, you know, I get to know what's going on all over these neighborhoods. You put in your zip code. And so it, it, it connects you to the people in your area. And I keep, I, I look at it. Um, 
because I want to know, because if somebody got the, had their car broken into, they'll say, hey, there were some criminals on such and such street, you know, be on the lookout, or hey, somebody broke into my house. Well, that, and that's going on all the time. But the one thing that just is irksome is this love fest for animals. And I, I, look, I'm a, I, I do consider myself to be an animal lover. I love my animals. I do take care of mine, but I'm not taking care of others. And, um, but it's this idea that, I mean, you know, sweet babe. Oh, I mean, they, they would do more to advocate for this stray dog than for any person. And that's offensive to me. It offends me. And that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. I, I mean, I, I don't mind advocating for an animal. I, don't, I, I would look down on you if you abused animals in a very mean and, uh, you know, no reason for it. I, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? Because I have seen there is a connection, there, there's a point of going too far, but there is a point where the Bible says that a righteous man has compassion for his animal. But again, what provides the moral foundation for those guards, for those standards? Christianity, when rightly understood and advocated. I drive by a church in Macon. It's a Christ Disciples Church. They have a bring your pet to worship day. <laughs> I mean. Okay. It's the last part. The, the, he, he goes on, he says, the best security against the evils that plague Justice and judges is a profession of Christian is a profession of the Christian faith. How one views God is revealed in their daily living. If you have a high view of God, it's going to reflect in your daily living. If you have a low view of God, it's going to reflect in your daily living. It's going to reflect your, how you interact with others is a reflection of your view of God. You remember this morning me talking about the second table of the law flows from the first? This is, this is the connection to that. Burke says, the glory of the gospel resides in its central doctrine that reconciles infinite grace and spotlessness or, or infinite grace in the mind of God. That is this, this, without the light, without this gospel light, men make up a deity. They make up a deity and by making up a deity, they, they, they fake the mercy and holiness. And that mercy and holiness is, is, it, it blows here and there. When men fake their religion, it, it's, it's worse. Why? Because it's not seasoned with love. I mean, even a sincere Christian who may be wrong will always have compassion and love. Why? Because they're true Christians. And they want the best. They may be wrong, may be ignorant, and they need education. But they want the best. Not men who fake it. 
He says, the view of his character that is, is displayed in their worship. He said it molds their spirit. It leaves an impress on their heart. I love that. That is, their view of God and how they worship him molds their spirit and leaves an impress on their heart, their conduct. Judges will then be prone either to confound dignity with severity and harshness or to mistake foolish compliance with popular evils for true benevolence. We see that. Earthly tribunals must be planted under the shadow of the cross that mercy and peace may meet together and righteousness and peace embrace each other in the firm and gentle administration of human law. I love that. And you know what? I don't see a weakness in it. Maybe you do. Maybe we could talk about it and you could show me what I'm missing here. But I see this as the higher motivation that he is talking about. Again, justice to be effective must be clothed with authority. Judgments that are despised where nothing is seen but the will, perhaps the caprice or passion of a fellow mortal or only a slight barrier to the progress of crime. That is, if, if, if we think that judges are just capricious, they, they rule on their own authority here and there, what's that going to produce? Ill will. What's the fruit of that? Rebellion. There's, he must appeal to, he must appeal with authority these judgments because he has a higher authority over him. He says, all and how shall this be where there is no reference to a supreme king? Psalm 2. When punishments have no message to the heart, their social benefit is at an end. Let that sink in. You say, well, that's the job of the church to penetrate the heart. I get that. But judges can also, when they're rendering justice and it's moral, guess what that does? That penetrates the heart too. Let me give you an example. This used to be commonplace. Young man gets in trouble. He's 16, 17, 18 years old. He goes before the judge, and maybe he's got a little bit of a record. He's a look, boy, you've been before me now. This is the third time. Maybe he's got a, his home life isn't strong enough, or maybe he's got a great home life. He's just, he's just a rebel. It was very common back when my dad was growing up for the judge to say, well, let me tell you what we're going to do. You're going in the military. You can go into the military. You can go to jail. That's your options. And I can't tell you the people that I've talked to that said that was the best thing that ever happened to them when they chose to go in the military. What, what, what did happen to them when they went into the military? They were placed under authority. And they had to learn how to work with others, how to work with people they didn't like, how to get along, and they had to work under authority. And they had to do it to the unity and the benefit of the group which is their problem. They didn't want to do anything but what they wanted to do. And this is part of that. 
I've seen it in sports. I've seen, I've, I've seen young men come to these coaches thinking that they were going to treat the coaches like they treated their mother. That didn't last long. Because back in when I was in school, you still got a, you could still get a whooping. You could still get a big wooden paddle that the coach would grab with two hands, put on your behind. Now, that was when I was in high school. And I did get that when I was in high school. They learned what? Authority. They learned that they're misbehaved. They weren't going to talk to that coach like they talked to their mother. And they, again, there's testimony after testimony. And many of these coaches were Christians. And many of these young men became Christians. Why? Because under the tutelage of that coach, they became not just interested, but they became convicted of their behavior and that there was a right way that things be done. And they got introduced to Jesus. All right. I think that's enough to prove our point. We're advocating for a Christian state and it's a moral obligation. We just laid a moral foundation and a religious foundation for the judges of the land. We need to pray that our judges be Christian. If they're not, they need to be Christian. If they're not serious Christians, they need to repent and become serious Christians. And if they won't become Christians, we need to pray for their removal. We need to pray for their removal and that they be replaced with Christian judges. Are there any questions concerning this afternoon's lesson?